Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. Well, good morning, guys. If you would, please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, we've got Bibles in the back there for you. That's our gift to you. We want to make sure you have the Word of God in your hands. As you turn there, let me review. We started our study of Matthew's gospel four weeks ago, believe it or not. And from a big picture standpoint, the Gospel of Matthew, it's a bridge book, meaning that it's a critical link between the Old Testament and the New. And as we have learned, Matthew immediately introduces us to Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy uh, and to prove that Jesus is the messianic king. Matt, as we like to call him, he provides Jesus's genealogical line. He, he shows us his ancestry, proving that Jesus does indeed come from the lineage of King David, and it's called the Davidic covenant. Uh, additionally, Matthew also shows us that Jesus is connected to Abraham with the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant, it's about man's, mankind's redemption that will come through Abraham's descendants. And as we read every name in Matthew chapter 1 about Jesus' ancestry, we learned that each name was really a clue in the code to that huge combination lock that we talked about. With each name, it was like click, click, click. God revealed the truth about the identity of his son. So Matthew starts off this amazing gospel with the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and then he taught us the genesis of Jesus Christ, meaning how God's son was physically born. Matthew taught us that Mary had to be a virgin. Uh, there is no other way for Jesus to be born as God. So Matthew enlightened us as, as to how and why that genealogical line must be broken from a human father for Jesus to be the messianic king. And then we also learned the importance of why the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary. And then lastly, the Holy Spirit made it clear to us that God doesn't wink at sin. Why doesn't God wink at sin like we do? Well, because we as humans, we can't save ourselves. We can't save ourselves from our sin. We can't save ourselves from God's wrath on sin either. It's impossible. I love bookstores. When I walk into a bookstore, I am usually trying to find the religious section, and I have to walk past the self-help section. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's one thing to teach yourself how to balance a checkbook or use your iPhone, but it, it's impossible self-help for salvation, right? We need somebody from outside this world to save us from our sin. And that's why Matthew goes to great pains to show us that Jesus did not come from a human father. He came from above. 
Jesus told Nicodemus, he said, you have to be born again, Nick. Come on, get with the program. And sin is why we must be born again. Well, just as Jesus was physically born from above, we too, we must, we must be spiritually born from above. So that's all a review, for kind of the big picture narrative so far from Matthew's gospel. And then what we saw as we took a closer look, we know that Mary did, of course, give birth to God's son. Joseph named him Jesus, just as he was instructed. And now we have God walking a man. Well, he's not walking around yet. He's a, he's a child. But God in, in human physical form, he, he lives among mankind. John's gospel says this, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Have you ever thought about that? That the Bible that you hold in your hand became a person, a living, breathing savior. Wow. So how does the world respond to all this? That God is now with us? What about religious people? How do they respond? They, they got the word memorized. But what do they think about the one true living God? And what is the first thing that people do when they find out that the messianic king, the king of all kings has arrived? And he's arrived to save their souls from an e eternal punishment, an e eternal torment uh, in a very real place called hell. How do people respond to all that? How do they respond to this good news? Well, let's find out. If you would, please stand for the reading and the honoring of God's word. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and following. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising, and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they said, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men, and he asked them the exact time that the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, and he said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, report, him back, report back to me, so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star that they had seen at its rising, and it led them until it came, and it stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshiped. Then they opened their treasures, presented him with gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. Father in heaven, the psalmist writes that we will speak decrees before kings and we will not be ashamed 
Father, that is such an appropriate psalm for today. Amen and amen. Thank you, guys. Please have a seat. Well, let's dive in here, looking at verse number one. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem. So we've got a lot of of information in this verse. So let's start with Bethlehem. Bethlehem, it's a tiny village about five miles outside of Jerusalem. Uh, Bethlehem, it means house of bread. Beth is house, Lehem is bread. And it's so small, we wouldn't call it a, a, a city. It's more of a village. Some theologians say that the population of, of Bethlehem is about four to 500 people at that time. However minute this village was, though, it sure did have a lot going on in the Old Testament. This is where Jacob buried his wife, Rachel, in Genesis chapter 35. Bethlehem is also where Ruth and Naomi, where they met Boaz in Ruth chapter 1. It's also the town where King David was born and raised, Luke chapter 2. So by the time Jesus was born, everybody recognized that Bethlehem was the city of David. Verse, number, uh, verse 1 continues here, in the days of King Herod. So Matthew first gives us the location. So we've got Bethlehem. And now he provides a time frame, the time of Herod, the King Herod. Herod was born in 70 BC. He died around 4 BC. And he ruled for about 37 years. Herod, or Herod the Great, as we know him, obviously a very humble man. I mean, how can you not be overflowing with humility with a name like that? Not only was Herod known as the Great, but in 40 B.C. at the age of 30, he convinced Mark Antony, Caesar Augustus, and the Roman Senate to give him a title. And the title was this, the King of the Jews. So, filled with irony, uh, obviously, but he wasn't even a Jew. Herod wasn't even a Jew. He was an Edenamite. Um, He was part Jewish. But he was healthy. He was a powerful politician. He was an excellent administrator. Herod was also a ladies' man. That's right. Married nine, possibly ten times. Had 15 children. Making Elizabeth Taylor jealous, uh, I would imagine. (laughs) Herod did some amazing things as king. When Israel fell on hard times financially, Herod gave, uh, gave back some tax money. So people could buy food for their families. There was also a great famine in in 25 BC. And to help with that crisis, Herod melted down some gold plates in his palace to buy food for the poor. And on top of those charitable things, Herod was an incredible architect. He built theaters. He built racetracks to entertain the people. And then in 19 BC, he began his biggest project, which was the reconstruction of the temple. But among those good qualities, Herod had a few problems. Number one, Herod really liked Herod the Great, the king of the Jews. Uh, He liked himself some Herod. Uh, He was a big fan, which caused number two, uh, that the Jews hated him for that. 
Herod was intoxicated with power, and yet at the same time, he was intimidated by anyone who had just a hint more than himself. Herod was also a bit neurotic when it comes to protecting his power. That's an understatement. Let me, uh, let me give you a couple examples. Number one, he had his favorite wife murdered. He also murdered two of his brothers because he, he suspected everybody of treason. He had his wife's brother, who was the acting high priest at the time, drowned. So his staff, some of his staff, they invited the high priest to, uh, to go swimming. If you guys invite me to go swimming, I've got this logged right here. <laughs> it's a great day at the beach. So the high priest thought, and, and all of a sudden they started horse playing, and all of a sudden it's not play anymore. The, the high priest is now fighting for his life, and Herod's cronies drowned the poor guy. And then Herod paid for a, a funeral, which is great, but then he pretended to weep and cry for the man. Five days before Herod's death, Herod had executed his third son, and then on Herod's deathbed, he rounded up some of the VIPs in Jerusalem. He had them arrested, and he gave orders that when he died, they were to kill all the VIPs. Why? Because he knew that Jerusalem would not weep when he died. They, they knew they would, he knew that they would rejoice and celebrate on his death, and he wanted people to cry. So, you know, it's just, it's never a good life lived when nobody shows up at your funeral. That's tragic. Let's look at verse 1 again. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem. So these wise men, or these magi, um, your, your translation may say magi there. Unfortunately, we have more theology that comes from our Christmas cards than, than our Bible when it comes to these guys. So we're going to slow way down today and we're going to learn about the magi. Number one, we don't know how many there are. We don't know their names. We don't know exactly where they're from. But despite the famous Christmas carol that says that they were from the Orient, the magi from the Orient, that's not necessarily true. Um, and as a footnote, after today's sermon, you may want to set up your nativity set just a little bit different for Christmas next year. <laughs> the only thing that we know about these magi is what is said in verse one. Let's look at it again. Wise men from the East arrived in Jerusalem. That's all we know from the New Testament. Um, but does the Old Testament say anything about the magi? What do you think? I see some heads doing this. Yeah, the, the book of Daniel has a lot to say about these men. So let's, let's look in the rearview mirror here. Let me set this up. In the book of Daniel, we've got King Nebuchadnezzar. He rules the Babylonian empire. He goes to war with Israel. He conquers Israel. He takes a whole lot of Jews back from Israel to Babylon with all of their stuff. Um, but all is not lost for Israel. God is still present with them. And uh, in Daniel chapter 1, verse 17, Daniel says this, God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding and every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. So those four men are Daniel, Hananiah, uh, Mishael, and Azariah. 
Verse 20, in every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about, he found these four young men better than all the magicians and the mediums in the entire kingdom. So circle that there, magicians and mediums. That's a big verse because the, the, the magicians and the mediums, they refer to a, gr- a group of people known as the magi. People have claimed that we get our English words magic and magician from magi. That's not necessarily true um, because at best, that's a, it's a distortion, it's a corruption of who the magi truly are. You really can't translate the word magi into English. So who are these men? Well, history tells us that the Magi, they were a distinct group, a pagan group of religious people from the East who were associated with the Medes. The Medes, they are closely uh, related to the Persians. Maybe you've heard of the the Medo-Persian Empire with King Cyrus. Uh, We also know that the Magi practice astronomy and astrology. This is probably where the confusion comes in with, with magic, magi, magician, all of that. All that to say this, these magi that we read about in Daniel, they were still living in Babylon during Jesus' birth. In addition to all of that, these magi, they're not just sorcerers and, and magicians. These men are government officials. So think of these men as a pagan version of the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi administered to, and they, they guarded the tabernacle. Um, so just as the tribe of Levi, they're a priestly line, the Magi also come from a priestly line. And they function in a, a very similar way, all but with pagan rituals. So these men are powerful. They're smart. They're politicians. And what they did is they rose up through the ranks of the Babylonian government. And we see this here with King Nebuchadnezzar back in in chapter 1. Now, we're going to stay in in the Old Testament for a few minutes. Um, Kind of a detour from our main passage today. But stay with me here. Because at the end of this detour, my prayer is that this passage, verse 1, is going to make a whole lot more sense to who these men are, why they came, and why everyone responded the way that they did. All right, so let's take a look at Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams that troubled him and sleep that deserted him. So the king gave orders to summon the magicians, the mediums, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. So in the, in the footnote of your Bible, write magi. These are the magi. When they came and then they came and stood before the king and the king said to them, look, guys, I've had a dream. I'm, I'm, I'm anxious to understand it. So the Chaldeans spoke to the king and they said, may the, may the king live forever. That's, that's a good politician right there. May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we're go- we'll give you the interpretation. And the king said, no, nah, uh-uh. my word's final. If you don't tell me the dream and its interpretation, Um, you're going to be torn limb to limb. Your houses will be made into a garbage dump. Oh my. But he says, if you make the dream, if you make the dream, you tell me the dream and its interpretation known to me, I'll give you gifts. I'm going to give you a reward. Great honor is going to come from me. So make the dream and its interpretation known to me. And then they answered a second time, 
Uh, May the king tell the dream to his servants, and we'll give you the interpretation. And the king said, no, I know for certain you're trying to gain some time here, boys, because you see that my word is final. If you don't tell me the dream, there is one decree for you. Um, You have conspired to tell me something false or fraudulent. You're just going to make this up. So tell me the dream, and I will know that you can give me its interpretation. So the Chaldeans answered the king. I I picture these guys getting all snarky on him now, all right? Look, king, come on. No one on earth is going to make what the king requests. And by the way, no king, doesn't matter how great and how powerful they are, has ever asked anything like this of any, and here we go, magician, medium, or Chaldean. Once again, right, magi. What the king is asking is so difficult that no one can make it known to him except the gods whose dwelling is not with mortals. Isn't that interesting? And because of this, because of their snarky response, the the king becomes violently angry. He gave orders to destroy all the wise men, all the magi of Babylon. The decree was issued that the, the wise men were to be executed And then they search for Daniel and his friends to execute them. So Daniel is lumped into this group of wise men. And then Daniel responded with tact and discretion to Arioch. Arioch is the captain of the king's guard who had gone out to execute the wise men of Babylon. And he asked Arioch, why is the decree from the king so harsh? Arioch explained the situation to Daniel. Daniel went and asked the king to give him some time so that he could give the king the interpretation. So David went to his house. He told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter. And by the way, those are the Jewish names of his, of his three friends. You may know them better with the Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So, verse 18 urging them to ask the God of the heavens for mercy concerning this mystery. So Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of Babylon's wise men. There's the Magi again. So basically, we've got Daniel. He finds out what's going on. He calls his buddies together, and we're going to have a prayer meeting. A prayer meeting just like we have every Wednesday from 12 to 1 here at the church. These men are praying for their lives at this point. Verse 19, the mystery was then revealed to Daniel in a vision at night. And Daniel praised the God of heavens. And he said this, May the name of God be praised forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes the kings, and he's the one that establishes kings. He's the one that gives this wisdom to the wise. He's the one that gives knowledge to those who have understanding. He's the one that reveals the deep and the hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness. And the light dwells in him. So Daniel says, I offer thanks and praise to you, God of my ancestors, because you have given me wisdom and power. See, this kind of wisdom is only a gift from God. And now you have let me know what we've asked for, for you have let us know the king's mystery. Therefore, Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had assigned to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. And he came and he said, don't destroy the wise men. Don't destroy the magi of Babylon. Bring me before the king and I will give him the answer. Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king. 
And he says, King, I found a man among the Judean exiles. You're not going to believe this. This guy's a Jew, King. He's a Jew, and he, he can tell you the dream and the interpretation. And then the king said uh, to Daniel, he said, are you able to tell me the dream that I had and the interpretation? And Daniel answered, no, no, king, I can't. He says, no wise man, here we go, wise man, medium, magician, or diviner is able to make known to the king, uh, known to the king the mystery that he asked about. So once again, right, magi by verse 27. Verse 28, he says, but, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has let King Nebuchadnezzar know what will happen in the last days. Now let's just pause because I know that was a lot of text. We see here that these wise men, these magi, they are so powerful that King Nebuchadnezzar knows them. He knows them by first name, first name basis. That's where they got, that they are advisors to the king. That's where they, they got this nickname, the wise men. So King Nebuchadnezzar is so impressed with Daniel. Daniel tells him the dream, the interpretation of the dream. He's so impressed with him. He promotes him in the, in the Babylonian empire. Look at this, Daniel chapter four, verse nine. So Belshazzar, so that's Daniel's Babylonian name. Look at this, head of the magicians. Because I know that you have the spirit of the holy gods that, and that no mystery puzzles you. Look what just happened. King Nebuchadnezzar makes Daniel the chief magi. Now this is one historic, this is one epic story uh, that goes on with the Babylonian empire. Even in Daniel's old age, people know him. They know this story. If we fast forward a few years to the handwriting on the wall incident with the new Babylonian king named Belshazzar, uh, he sees the writing on the wall. He starts freaking out. Daniel chapter 5, verse 11. And someone says, calm down, king. There's a man in your kingdom who has a spirit of the holy gods in him. In the days of your predecessor, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods. Your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, the mediums, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. Once again, all the magi. So let's tie some of this all, all together now. Daniel is one of King Nebuchadnezzar's right-hand men. Daniel is a Jew. He's also the leader of the magi. The Magi, a pagan group of men who are from a priestly line, who are elite politicians. And some people think that God does not have a sense of humor. But watch this. And this is where it gets really, really fun. Historians tell us that a Persian could only become king under two circumstances. Number one, he mastered the discipline of the Magi. And number two, he had to be approved and crowned by the Magi themselves. All right? Brings us to our key point for today. The Magi are king makers. The Magi are king makers. Now, I don't know about you guys, but dear friends, that is a crazy kind of power that these Magi have. I mean, think about it. Who has more authority? The king or the king makers. 
And by the way, if you know your church history, that issue, that issue of who has more power, that divides the church. That's another sermon for another day. But with that kind of royal power that the Magi have, imagine the influence that Daniel has on the Babylonian people. The Babylonian Gentiles, they have to be heavily influenced by the Jews because of Daniel. The Babylonian Gentiles um, are all over. He's got all this influence on them. And not only that, Daniel's not the only Jew in Babylon. Um, There are hundreds of thousands of Jews living there. And even after the Babylonian exile, when all these guys could go home, most of them stay. Um, Some Jews were, were too old to go back home. I mean, if you think it's tough to get your parents to go to the grocery store that's right down the street, imagine taking them 900 miles on foot. The same is probably true for families with children. I mean, how would you like to walk 900 miles with a toddler or a teenager? Which, which one's worse? Some people are sick. Some people are, are disabled. They can't go. Other Jews probably just refused to go because they liked Babylon. Many of, many of the Jews were born in Babylon. They've, they've been there at least 70 years. They don't know anything else. They're comfortable where they are. So all that to say, there's a lot of Jews living in Babylon at this time. So question, is it fair to say that the Babylonians also learned about the one true living God during this time? Is it fair to say that the Babylonians would be familiar with the Hebrew Bible and the Jewish Messiah known as the King of the Jews? Of course, See, it's here in Babylon, guys, where there is a God intersection between these magi in the Old Testament and then in Matthew's gospel as one. So let's read this this text again. Matthew 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Now, does that change your view on this verse? And look what they ask in verse 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We've got powerful politicians who just happen to be kingmakers that come from the Medo-Persian empire asking where the new king of the Jews is. And they're not talking about Herod the Humble. I mean, Herod the Great. How do you think that question is going to fly with Herod? I mean, Herod's the self-proclaimed king of the Jews, isn't he? How's it going to fly? Ah, you're going to have to come back next week to find out. (laughs) See, this is what happens when I have two weeks to prepare for a message. We only get through verse one. But it is a fascinating story, isn't it? So let's pause and think about what's taking place here. Is your God big enough to ordain a Hebrew slave to rise up through the ranks and rule a pagan group of kingmakers called the Magi for the sole purpose of sending Gentiles to worship a baby named Jesus that just happens to be in a no-name town outside of Jerusalem? Is your God that big? 
Is your God that big to be doing something similar today? Is it possible that your God is, is also ordaining world events right now to get our attention? To get the church's attention? Is your God big enough to allow a pandemic to take place, to shake his church up to the very core? Is he, is he separating the wheat from the chaff, the self-proclaimed Christians from the disciples? Is your God big enough to write history? Because that's what he did, isn't it? He ordained history in Babylon for Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 to take place. Next week, we're going to see how the city of Jerusalem was not ready for that question that these pagan Gentile kingmakers are asking. And we're also going to learn what that star is. What is that star? Lastly, we're going to see the heart of man revealed when people learn of Jesus' birth. How do they respond? There's three different ways, three different groups of people. Well, Father in heaven, we want to thank you for giving us a lot of history today. We want to thank you for teaching us some Old Testament and teaching us how you wrote history how you've ordained things to happen to show us how people, Gentiles, will travel 900 miles, kingmakers, to ordain and worship your king. Father, may we uh, take this history lesson and may we share it with those here in the Verde Valley. May we do something with it These men traveled 900 miles to worship Jesus. You've given us an amazing backyard to do the same. And I do pray for those God intersections and these divine disruptions for all of us this week. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.